There's an interesting spiritual lesson to be learned in a decision made by the Coca-Cola company that, believe it or not, may contain a practical lesson for us as the people of God. In 1985, Coca-Cola replaced their original soda recipe with what came to be known at that time as New Coke. The new recipe was so poorly received and it created such an angst among many Coke drinkers over the loss of the original Coke-flavored soda that they loved. The response to the new Coke, which had replaced the original Coke, got so bad that after only three months, they returned the original flavor under the label Classic Coke. And eventually, after about seven years, they did away with new Coke entirely. Stay with me for a few minutes because I hope to make a point that is far bigger than a history lesson on the Coca-Cola company. And that when you look at the whole story of what happened with the original Coke versus new Coke, it might actually make a practical point that might even apply to some of the traditions that we have as a church. What many people don't know is that Coca-Cola had done a lot of research and many different taste tests before they ever introduced new Coke. The information that they gathered by doing all this research and all these taste tests strongly suggested, especially in the responses of those who had taken the taste test, that new Coke actually tasted better, at least in these blind taste tests, than the classic recipe did. Now, it's not my intent to wage war over what cola, soda, or as we more commonly call it here in the northern United States, pop has the best flavor. I can't even personally recall what new Coke tasted like, and I'm not taking a side in the war between Coke and Pepsi products. But there is a deep lesson in the reaction to new Coke and the rejection of it and the eventual removal of it entirely. After many taste tests of New Coke, before telling people what it was or even releasing it as a replacement for the older classic Coke, Coca-Cola discovered that most people who were given a blind taste test of classic Coke versus New Coke preferred the latter over the former. Now, a blind taste test is where you basically give somebody two cups and you don't tell them what's in each cup and you just ask them which one tastes better. The idea obviously being that they can't prejudice their minds and thus prejudice their taste buds against which one they think is better because they have no idea what the two different drinks are. The fact that most people, and it was a majority, who were given a blind taste test of these two versions of Coke actually preferred the new Coke would seem to be pretty good evidence that the new Coke would be a success if most people thought it tasted better than the original Coke. But oddly enough, when it was released, it was heavily rejected and vehemently resisted by many Coke drinkers. The most common response was, how dare you take away the Coke that I grew up with and that I love so much and replace it with this foul concoction that doesn't taste as good, at least didn't taste as good to them. And by the way, some of the very people who were saying that it tasted so terrible and that it was nothing like the original Coke were some of the very ones who had taken the blind taste test and when they didn't know which was which, had said that the new Coke tasted far better than the original. So hadn't the taste test proved that most people actually preferred the taste of new Coke to that of the older classic Coke? Yes, they did. But sometimes what's actually better, at least according to those that were tested, that took the blind taste test, is not always sufficient to override what is familiar. The taste of classic Coke had become so deeply woven into the fabric of the lives of those who drank it regularly that even if they were given something that they themselves claimed actually tasted better, they would reject it and return to the old classic taste they had been raised drinking. Some of the very folks who led the major movements to get rid of new Coke, and there actually were movements that rose up to do that, and to return to classic Coke, were some of the ones, as I noted a moment ago, who had actually taken the taste test, where they had claimed, when they didn't know which was which, that the new Coke tasted better. 
even after they were told that, that they had chosen the new over the old in a blind taste test, it did not matter to them. Their deep emotional and traditional attachment to the classic Coke was too strong to reject it for something that they had claimed themselves had actually tasted better. Now, I gave all that history, and there's a lot more to the history than that if somebody really enjoys that sort of thing. And by the way, it's a subject that actually doesn't mean a great deal to me personally, but it does point out something about human nature that is tragic when we apply it to theological traditions. I have seen individuals who were presented with information in the scripture that they had not considered before, whether verses that they hadn't read and considered on a subject, whether the actual and accurate meaning of language and grammar that they didn't previously know was what the Bible was really saying in the original language, whether the cultural and contextual basis for certain expressions and inscriptions that they had previously misunderstood or misapplied, or other pieces of evidence that contradict their classic traditional view that if they were honest with themselves, they would know tasted, I mean that in quotes, better than the classic traditional view they had been taught. And by the way, I don't just mean tasted in the sense that I like it better, like it tickles my ears or it's easier. No, no. I'm talking about information that actually proves that there is a better, more accurate way to understand what the Bible is saying. Not a liberal approach to biblical interpretation, trying to look for ways to avoid responsibility or to avoid what the Bible's really saying, but a more accurate understanding of what the Bible actually is saying. That when you look at it, anyone who is not entirely blinded by their biases and prejudices about what the Bible has to be saying, according to them, of course, would readily recognize this is a better interpretation, this is a clearer explanation, Though this is different than what I thought it said, when you take all the pieces and parts into account that I didn't know before, this is obviously what this means. Sadly, those things have no bearing on somebody that has addicted themselves to an interpretation or prejudiced themselves to any possibility other than what their classic traditional belief is. It is very unfortunate that we can't, at least in most cases, be given a blind taste test regarding our doctrinal beliefs and some of our practices and standards and other things, because if we could actually examine what the Scripture fully says on a subject and what it really says based on the language and the grammar and other things that maybe we haven't considered before, without our preconceptions and prejudices overriding the competing taste, and I mean that in quotes again, that's associated with other possibilities, we might find there is something better. In other words, a more accurate, more biblical, more appropriate understanding of what the Bible is saying, and thus a better spiritual taste, because truth tastes a lot better than falsehood. But the problem is some people have gotten themselves so used to the taste of their false idea about something, their false belief, or even their falsely founded practice that they believe is necessary, that it's like somebody who has been eating processed foods all their life and never ate something organic or natural. And when they eat something organic or natural that perhaps is not only better tasting, but is also far healthier, they'll reject it because their taste buds, and this is true of people's spiritual taste buds as well, have been taught, have been trained to desire a certain taste. Some people have a, such a strong desire to see certain things in the Bible or not to see certain things in the Bible they don't want to see that they have literally trained their spiritual taste buds to only enjoy the taste of those things they have invented or the traditions that have been passed down to them, even when those traditions have no biblical support and no biblical foundation. And there are far better ways of looking at whatever the doctrine or practice might be that's associated with those traditions. 
the interpretational views that we're raised with, whether from childhood or from some other point where we encountered a teaching tradition that affected our thinking, can become powerful, controlling governors on our minds that'll prejudice us against false teaching, if they're true, or that will prejudice us against the truth, if they're false. If the latter's the case, that they're actually false, and we've been prejudiced against the truth by being taught that they're true, We might even be presented with the truth at some point. And deep within, we might know, though we might not be willing to admit, that it fits better with the whole of the scriptural testimony. It doesn't have the potential contradictions with other scriptures that maybe our present view does. And it simply tastes better spiritually than our traditional belief. But we just can't escape the grooves that have been laid down in our mind by what we've been raised believing is best, which is what we're certain just has to be the truth, even if it's not. Where this is the most tragically obvious is when we associate traditions with locations or groups and then we prejudice our spiritual taste buds to any other recipe that's not the good old whatever. That's not the way brother so-and-so taught or that's not the way the such-and-such group that I'm a part of or subset because there are subsets even within overall groups or that's not the way they taught it at such-and-such a location. And that kind of a spirit prejudices our spiritual taste buds. Again, I'm using that very freely. What I mean by taste buds, of course, is our ability to actually taste and see. Not just that the Lord is good, I surely hope we can do that, but to taste and see what is good in terms of what is the best understanding of His Word, the best understanding of what He expects of us and what we should be doing, and not just introducing our own ideas into the Bible or introducing our own practices and claiming that it is appropriate to create new customs and even canon laws that not only are not in the Bible, but they're not based on a principle of the Bible, and in some cases are in direct contradiction to what the Bible actually teaches. So by spiritual taste buds, I'm talking about our ability to drink some of the milk of the Word of God or eat some of the meat of the Word of God and appreciate when what we are drinking is unadulterated milk. It's milk from the source or clean meat. It's meat from a clean animal. It's not something that's had pollutants put into it or additives of some kind or something else. We have to get our taste buds trained so that we don't desire anything but the right type of milk and the right type of meat. But sometimes, as I started saying, we can prejudice our spiritual taste buds to any other recipe that produces any other taste that isn't like that of the good old such-and-such view, whether it's the view of an individual who we've allowed to impact our thinking or whether it's the view of a group or whether it's just the view of a certain location that you think that church, because of what I experienced there spiritually has to be the best view and has to be true. Thank God for what we've experienced in different churches and gathering places. But sometimes what you've experienced in a place is representative of God's love and his mercy and not representative of the fact that every single thing that goes on in that place or in that church or whatever the case might be is exactly what God desires. If the only places that God blessed and poured out his spirit upon were places that have perfect truth and are doing everything exactly like God wants, there likely would be no place where God would be pouring out his spirit. So we can't look at the outpourings of the spirit and the good feelings we've had and the experiences we've had in certain locations or even under certain leaders as evidence that every single thing that they taught or that was taught in those locations is true and that it should never be reconsidered. I have heard people say, that's the way so-and-so taught it, so it has to be right. Or that's the teaching of the whatever, whether group or location where it was predominantly taught. So it has to be true. And any group or location who taught it differently has to be wrong. 
If we're not careful, we'll become so insulated by our preference for whatever our traditional view is, that even if greater truth is simply from the standpoint of the Bible and spiritually from the standpoint of anointing tastes better, is presented to us, we'll reject it out of hand for our classic conception of what just has to be the only and the right way. This issue becomes clearest when it comes to the kind of doctrinal teachings that we are still heavily divided on. We all, no matter what different tradition or lineage we've come from, have our classic conceptions of certain subjects, whether the devil, the resurrection, the nature of perfection, or other issues. We all have acquired a taste, have almost been trained into that taste, regarding those classic conceptions that we were raised with. And our feeling that that taste is best can be so deeply ingrained into our identities. And by that, I'm talking about our concepts of ourselves and of the group that we associate ourselves with or the teaching lineage we associate ourselves with, that even if a greater truth with a sweeter taste and a healthier end result is available, we won't accept it. It's because we've come to associate our very identity with a tradition a location where we receive that tradition, or a person who was a source of certain teachings. And questioning those teachings is tantamount to heresy because even though they're just traditions, and there may even be better ways of looking at it, and in some cases I mentioned a few minutes ago, they may not only not be in the Bible, they may be the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. They have become so sacred to us that they are sacrosanct, which is to say they are too sacred to even be touched too sacred to be discussed as to whether or not they have value. And any time they are discussed, again, whether we're talking about doctrines or practices, standards of operation, whatever it might be, I'm not thinking of anything in particular, but any time anyone would attempt to say, is this really biblical? There is an immediate knee-jerk, sometimes emotionally charged reaction to any questioning of those traditions. That should never occur. We should always be seeking what is better. If we're attempting to restore the church, we have to always be seeking what is better. What is clear, what is more biblical, what is more accurate, what is less tradition, but unfortunately the church, and I mean the church in all of its aspects, true, false, and varieties in between, tends towards creating traditions rather than holding to doctrines and standards that are only based on the scripture. Part of the reason is there are some things that people don't want to believe that are clearly stated in the scripture, so they have to create some teaching that might be based on symbolism or something else to change or even erase what is actually in the scripture. Or certain standards or practices have risen up that sometimes we can become almost violently protective of that we have no biblical basis for teaching or requiring as part of the activity or standards of the church. But we can't let anyone change the recipe that we're used to. And that is a dangerous thing because the recipe that we have at this moment in terms of our doctrines, our order, our standards, our operations, every aspect of the church is not yet the exact recipe that was the recipe of the early church. And until we find that exact recipe, we will not restore the early church. And if we keep on putting additives of our own traditional beliefs or practices into the mix, we are going to guarantee we are not going to restore the church because we don't get to add our own traditions and our own customs and then think we're moving closer towards restoration. And I've talked about this a lot to our ministers we work with lately, so you've probably heard me use these three things, and I'm not going to go into them in detail here at this point, but we have to base what we do and what we teach and everything that we require on what the Bible directly and openly says needs to be done or not done, what biblical principles clearly communicate need to be done or not done, 
or what we see people practicing in the Bible and biblical descriptions that clearly are things God favors. We do not get to invent new ideas, especially when those ideas are, as I said, not only not in the Bible, but many times exactly the opposite of what is in the Bible. That will lead to two dire end results. One will be that we will become so addicted and attached to that particular traditional doctrinal teaching, traditional standard, traditional operation or activity, whatever, that no matter how much biblical and factual information shows that we should not be teaching it and certainly not requiring people to believe it or to do it, we will dig our heels in and look for almost ludicrous interpretations and ideas to defend it. When almost anyone standing outside of the discussion would say, why in the world would you think that? Or that is not at all what the scripture is saying, but we have to defend it tooth and nail to the death in some cases. And sadly, the death that we're defending it to may be our own spiritual death if we do not let go of some things that have been added that do not belong in the recipe. Or if we don't add the things into the recipe that must be added into the recipe so that we can eventually see the restoration we're seeking. So the first dangerous element is that we'll just keep anchoring ourselves deeper into something until we get to a point where we have anchored ourselves so deeply into whatever our teaching or practice or standard is that we are not going to change it no matter what is said. We'll literally bury our head in the sand and nothing anyone says is going to get us to recognize or to correct what it is that we're teaching or requiring. The second issue that's so dangerous is that that will, as I said a moment ago, prevent us from ever coming to a place of restoration. Not only will it individually blind us to things that are obviously true because we are too stubbornly determined to actually consider that we might be wrong on something because that's how it's always been done or that's how so-and-so taught it or that's how they did it at such-and-such location or such-and-such group. But because we won't make the changes, we will actually be creating an identity that is not the church we are trying to restore because we are not trying to reinvent the wheel. The pattern for the wheel, if you want to call it that, that was the early church is laid down in the Bible. We're not trying to come up with a new version of the early church or a new church entirely. So whatever traditions that we add that are not based on biblical principles, that are not seen in biblical practices, and are not given as biblical precepts are additions, and we are not to add to the Word of God any more than we're to subtract from it. And if we're trying to truly restore that true church that was the early church, we are not going to do it by adding beliefs and practices into our present church that we're not part of that church, and not only would be foreign to that church, but they would probably be stupefied by because they're so opposite of what the Bible actually teaches and describes, and then think we are going to see a restored church. We truly have to go back to the Bible in every single thing we do. And if people ask us questions about why we do something, and we come up with all kinds of insensible reasons for something that have nothing to do with the Bible, or don't even make rational sense, that is evidence that our beliefs are not biblical. We have to move forward making adjustments to the recipe until we find the exact same recipe that the early church had. Only then will we see the restoration of the church. Not by introducing our own ideas and our own practices and our own requirements that have nothing to do with the early church, which not only will confuse the people, especially when we won't give them a legitimate answer for why we see something a certain way when it's not how the Bible teaches it, or why we are requiring them to do things a certain way when it is not how the Bible teaches it. But we will actually be building something that is foreign and not built on the pattern that that early church was built on. 
And that is going to guarantee we will not restore that church. Brethren, and I'm talking to those ministers I work with locally as well as the ministers I work with in other nations and areas, I strongly believe that we will get greater insight and we will get clearer evidence on certain doctrinal subjects, particularly those we're presently divided on, as we get closer to the restoration of the church. The question is, though, will we be able to truly compare and contrast our classic beliefs, the tradition that's associated with whatever camp we've been in or whatever teaching lineage we have inherited, with what may or may not be greater truth and clarification? Or are we going to be so heavily entrenched in our camps of belief and practice and so deeply prejudiced about our traditions, about a doctrinal issue or operation or standard or whatever the case might be, being the only possible way to believe something or to do something, that even if it's demonstrated to be impossible biblically or just improbable rationally, we will never reconsider it. Some things are classical or traditional because they're the very best. And some are classical or traditional because they've been made that way over time and not because they're superior. The only classical and traditional things that we should be teaching and requiring as necessary are the things that are biblically classical and based on biblical traditions.